Welcome to part two of Seeing Sound, the podcast where Playtronica and Lost and Sound team up and take you on a journey between what we see and what we hear. Presented by me, Paul Hanford. So I just woke up this morning and noticed I had one banana quite bruised and half an onion left of all my fresh food. So I'm just taking a stroll now down to the street market that runs alongside the canal in Neukölln, near where I live in, in Berlin. It's a place that I love coming to to get my fresh produce and it's such a rich cornucopia of smells and tastes and as you can hear there like a little bit of music as well um it's a place that really really does something to my senses it just just makes them kind of go wow and i'm here in the market because today we're diving into the senses and meeting two artists that share their connection between what we see hear taste and smell what happens when these senses combine when someone might actually hear a taste or see a sound or taste a color for example this phenomenon is called synesthesia a lot of music makers have said that they're synesthetic duke ellington for example said that he could see sound to get a better example of this i spoke with producer dj and educator daedalus as well as making richly textured, genre-pushing music, and along the way working alongside MF Doom and Flying Lotus, amongst others, Daedalus did a TED Talk once where they said that we're all synesthetic. Whilst I'm going to go and get my vegetables, I'm going to leave you with what happened when I had a chat with Daedalus. And one of the things that I've always loved about your work is that although you're predominantly uh, you know, a music producer and a musician, um, you have such an, a, a philosophical take on what you do. And particularly uh, this TED talk I listened to you do, which I loved, and you're talking about the fact that we're all synesthetic. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what you mean by that. So there's, there's this nice place where the science and then the feeling converge and also let's say don't ever meet um, the science of it of course is that as babies as as uh, you are figuring out your neural network you are synesthetic to the max like I have a baby in my house currently it is incredible at times when you omit a sound how they'll blink or how a touch will seemingly set off a series of quick fire organization in the mind where it tries to figure out where this this impact input is coming from and what sense should be the dominant one to receive it so you can see it reacting i mean i'm, I'm it's i don't I'm not doing science experiments on baby but at the same time it is incredible to have this so upfront and personal in a way that i've tried to understand from reading reading the you know the thesis of of many who get into this um and so the science is there and then there are examples of people, individuals who really pronouncedly wear this on their sleeve. A lot of artists, but also others who, who kind of, yeah, the synesthetic experience of having multiple, uh, like, yeah, this kind of deluge of input kind of happening across whatever's happening in, in the, the nervous system. And then on a much more subtle way, we, we oftentimes have these experiences that are like bright and bold. And we use words to describe these things. Like when you taste something that is really 
yeah, when like something is really sharp, we oftentimes use words like bright or we use words like dull and things that actually aren't really from the same space. And of course, this is just a linguistic trick, but there does hint at the fact that we we were encountering the world with this larger apparatus, right? That our antennas are actually like constantly fizzing on everything. And then finally, on the kind of much more feelingful side, when we were listening to music, it, it really hits us in an emotional space that does encounter and, and like create memory and drift into these kind of like why a minor chord might make us feel sad or why a major music, why made and like, so even though this isn't necessarily dealing with the sight or feeling like when you think about the memory palace idea where where memories are stored they're often a very physicalized thing many people will look to a certain direction when they're thinking of a certain memory and yet music will also take you there so some deep part of our lizard brain is is kind of giving directionality to our sound spaces and thusly they kind of have like a tactile a sensory a, a sight field that that also is is like very like emboldened with them but that's less science and more like just just noticing the thing, just seeing how it feels. Like I, I'm sure you get goosebumps or you know goose flesh, depending on on the way you pronounce things. Um, when you listen to certain songs and how like thrilling that is, and something something deep is happening. There's something very religious, something very spiritual, something also just very fun. And sound does that very well. Is there, is there like a time in your life where you first made like a real connection between sound and, and visual? I can think of many instances. Um, one of my most profound experiences, and this is a little bit away from sound doing it, but still in that kind of aspect, like it totally changed my life. I walked into a record store when I was just a very young teenager. I saw a record on, on the wall that was a picture of a moon. And I was like, I like this. It was a huge amount of money for me at the time. And it was an import from the UK. And it turned out it was a record uh, by an artist named Asen, A-C-E-N. And it was called Trip to the Moon Part One. Now, this was like a limited press record on a, on a small label called Production House. And it, it turns out to be this like rave anthem. And I, I got it at a too young an age to totally understand what it was happening. But I was drawn to it because this beautiful picture of a moon. So here's this small way where it isn't the sound itself, but it's the kind of complete package that spelled this kind of sense of wonder towards this object that drew me in, like reached across the room and, and had me pick up that record and marvel at it enough to like, I don't care what money this is. I can't, you know, I'm not going to buy seven other things. I'm just going to buy this one thing. And that one thing did change my life. So in many ways that, you know, that circuitous route where the visual became the sound experience and it, it all did have a gestalt like it all pushed itself together did you when, when you played the music when you played the moon uh trip to the moon did mm. you have an image of the moon in the sound well that's the thing is like you know of course like uh seeing the picture of the moon and then flipping it over and seeing the name of the song it's like okay well this is these are these like little hints at what what could be and then the sound did somehow transport me up into the stratosphere. And so it, it did, yeah, that onomatopoeia that I mentioned earlier was really complete in that experience. And of course, it also did spell out some of my imagination space and where the sound would go. And then later, in maybe in a very fundamental and important fashion, I heard that music live played by DJs. And then all of the shock and awe, the strumendrong of that music really then became even more perfect. And it isn't to say that every rave anthem had artwork that reach towards those heights 
but because that experience was so spelled out for me early on, I think I always patterned it that way. I always made it this epic, glorious, like kind of flying thing mm-hmm. that really wanted to rock it elsewhere. Uh, versus, you know, there's plenty of other forms of music where there's like dark imagery or these kind of intimate. And of course, you know, they all spell a certain kind of space. They all create a certain kind of reverb, let's say, that you're allowed to play in. But um, with that, I felt limitlessness and kind of invited to to enjoy that that experience. Yeah. And that was big. That's really big. And I've, I've definitely like even if I haven't made those sounds in my career, I've echoed that same sentiment forever. Like I want I want it to be a, a large idea that you can kind of just get sucked up into like a tractor beam. You're someone that's also got such a kind of natural but like unique personal style as well. In the more kind of beat-based world, um, it's, it's sort of it's quite unusual for someone to kind of bring in this kind of sort of quite suave kind of, you know, almost like Victorian, if you don't mind me saying, you know, kind of no, style. How, how did this kind of come up? I mean, these things are always very organic, but how did this come about? Yeah, I, so I can express a little bit of this. Now, in terms of the beat scene, there's always flamboyant characters that have been present, um, somewhat based in, in traditions that are, are like... So I, I grew up in Los Angeles, and there is an incredible club culture that has existed there in terms of both like the ditch parties and kind of rave scene and the art house music that was present and like the punk scene and all this like these figures and stuff and in a lot of ways the 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 village of misfit children that the beat scene was accumulated people from all corners that were just enthusiastic about what was essentially instrumental hip-hop but kind of done in new light and taken to 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 new heights but part of that was uh people coming from their existing traditions and their sounds and their musics but also since i predate a bit of that i have this kind of extra bit of of chip on my shoulder where I was trying to figure myself out throughout this whole time. Um, one thing I can share is that I, I, uh, I, I associate myself with non-binary pronouns. I've always had this kind of feeling where I, uh, I had this respect and understanding and admiration towards fashion and that it said these bold things that I oftentimes thought like music in its kind of temporalness would get across. But fashion, when you just witness somebody, you see this like lightning strike of, of a iconoclastic assertion of like ideas just emanating from this person. Now that's at its height at its worst. It's just this like brand value. You can kind of see a number associated or flash above someone's head about like the kind of banal. But since I've always been reaching for this kind of like, okay, this is understood and known, but maybe just outside of our experience, Victorian fat felt really good for that. And also do you, are you familiar with the artist Bo Brummel? I'm, I'm not, or not I'm, artist. I should say philosopher. Right. Like, yeah, they they were the kind of figurehead, the, the very first dandy, let's say. And they uh, took what was military fashion from the Napoleonic era and like brought it into a place where it, it didn't have military signatures anymore. It actually kind of, kind of blurred the line between the frock and the kind of dress and the... It, it made it made basically everything that they did was artful suddenly. And this idea fundamentally appealed to me so much because in my music, I don't try to have a loose kick drum or a, a random snare. I want everything to fit in its kind of lockstep, beautiful clockwork to make it so that everything is, is more artful for it. So why not try to dress like a little bit like that too? 
Um, even though it's very, it has a very mask presence, at least what we've kind of carried through from that Victorian era, in many ways they were, they were at, a, at an interesting place where they had finally decentralized fashion from the kind of kings and queens of the age and like brought it to a pleasant place of normal people who could kind of, you know, aspire towards things certainly, but also say things with like the way they tucked in a pocket square or what they did with a, their kind of necktie or these kind of things would say volumes in an era where maybe, uh, you know, a lot of things were just coming into the, into the crosshairs of what was possible. And sound was changing a lot too. You look at all the romantic era composers of that same period of the 19th century and it's huge possibilities are, are afoot. Just coming away from the market now and thanks to Daedalus for speaking with uh, Seeing Sound. And I wouldn't consider myself synesthetic particularly, but I do have a very, I guess, emotional response to how certain senses combine like with me with food and music is one thing a roast an English Sunday roast always takes me back to being very very young and having a Sunday roast with my parents and the kind of music that they would play that they'd have on vinyl playing over those Sundays would be like Elton John or the Doobie Brothers or something just really smooth and of that ilk and to me, that's really, really all combined, the, the sound and the smell and the taste. I was really happy to get a clearer idea of what synesthesia is. Next, I went to meet an artist who actually has synesthesia. Portrait XO is originally from LA, then London, now Berlin, and she makes deeply futuristic work that blurs the line between music and visual language to the point where it seems to become seamless. It's over time that she's seen all of these fields combine in her work, but I wanted to know how it began. I started off with music in the most traditional sense of like classical piano since I was really young. And then I got really into electronic music production after just being so like completely blown away by uh, Bjork and Radiohead and Massive Attack. And those were the artists that like, you know, living in L.A. and being exposed to purely pop culture and pop music of like whatever was coming out the radio. That was such a game changer for me because I just never heard anything like that before. And so I just became like my curiosity just kept growing um, deeper into wanting to understand like how do people even make these type of sounds um, that led me into um, electronic music production. And it was when I moved to London um, and I lived there for nine years that really opened me up to a lot of really fascinating people working not just in electronic music, but music tech nerds like coders who were also making music and developing instruments or collaborating with like neuroscientists and working with brainwave technology and converting like brainwave data into music. It was like a totally new angle uh, that I've never been exposed to um, in in terms of like what you could do with music beyond the traditional sense. Do you feel that you're thinking more about music in a visual way than you used to? I definitely find myself visualizing stuff while I create music more so than I did before. I don't know if that's because of 
my synesthesia or if it's because I I have a better understanding of what, kind, what are the possibilities of a visual creation based on the few experiments that I've done. I don't know how to describe the feeling, but it's kind of like when you have this like really, really itchy spot on your back that you can't reach <laughs> and then suddenly you scratch it and you're like, oh my God, it's like the best feeling ever. That's like the same kind of sensation I get when I watch and listen to something where the visuals and the sounds are just like so perfectly married. <laughs> and I didn't realize that like that's not something that everybody experiences when they have this perfect correlation of sound and, and visuals. That I guess that's my form of therapy. <laughs> that's amazing. I love that. And so are you actually a synesthetist? Yeah, so my um, main form of synesthesia is between taste and sound. Um, and they work both ways. So when I hear frequencies, I taste flavors and when I taste flavors I hear frequencies um, the strength of how they um, kind of like work depends on how strong the frequency is so if it's like lemon which is like a really high frequency in terms of the actual taste and the sound then I will have a much stronger reaction and I'll hear the frequencies I'll taste the flavors in, in a much more um, cathartic way as opposed to if it's rice or bread, then it's a very subtle kind of like in the background, mid-tone sound, almost like a like a mid-frequency drone or something. <laughs> and then sometimes with colors, I will taste the colors um, and then it'll be like colors to flavor to sound in that order. Do you ever cook sonic food? Like cook something that I hear? <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. When you, you sort of describe so amazingly, like sort of like lemons and then compared to rice, do you think like when you're cooking, do you kind of aware that there's a sonic fusion of sounds as well going with the ingredients? So like I've been asked before if there's ever any, if there are ever any frequencies that I hear or taste that just gives me a really repulsive reaction. And my answer is no, like, unless it's something, oh, there are actually um, a couple of frequencies that just like nails against a chalkboard and metal against metal. So if I walk past a construction site and I hear like a hammer hammering against a piece of metal or like when you go to the dentist, you hear a lot of these noises, it will actually be the most unpleasant reaction that happens like uh, like my hair will stand up like all over my body and I have to like cover my ears and my whole mouth just gets like that acidic reaction that you would get if like I don't know you bite into a lemon or a or an onion <laughs> that kind of a feeling and like I could actually taste the metal inside of my mouth and it feels like my teeth are breaking um so yeah, the sounds of metal tends to do that to me and um, I will it will actually stop me from being able to function. So I have to like either walk away, put headphones on or um, do whatever I can to drown out that sound. But yeah, um, I don't know, maybe I incorporate sound and taste while I cook and I just am not aware of it <laughs> because it's so innate. But I didn't I didn't know what synesthesia was and like for the longest time I just ex I just expected that everyone had some form of synesthesia 
because as a kid, I would just sing whenever I would listen or whenever I'd eat something. And especially when I eat something really sugary,、um, I would sing really high pitched melodies that would just drive my mom crazy. Because, <laughs> Chris, yeah, sugar always triggers really high frequencies. And,、um, and, then I and then I thought about it, I thought, well, I wonder if, like, all the other kids also hear these really high frequencies, and that's the reason why they start screaming really loud when they eat, like, candy, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's amazing because we draw kind of me metaphors to that anyway, don't we? Of, like, sort of sugar as connotations of kind of like energy and sort of, you know, high, I guess, like, sort of, we, we think of like food with high sugar contents maybe being kind of like, Sometimes, like sweets and stuff like that, which are kind of have bright colors and, and things. It's amazing how, like, maybe there's an undercurrent of synesthesia, like, in life anyway, but is like just sort of, I don't know, just undetected by people that don't have major synesthesia, but it's just part of how we see things. Yeah. I mean, they say, neuros neuroscientists say that we're all born synesthetic and we kind of,、um, A lot, majority of us lose this、uh, ability to feeling all of our senses all at the same time, and it being this like just like a blobbed experience as we prune.、Um, I can't remember the exact age when pruning starts to happen. I think, I don't know, maybe 18 months or something like that. And we start compartmentalizing、um, like sight and hearing and smell and taste. And when we start compartmentalizing, we start losing some of those like. Automatic cross firing of、um, senses. But it's something that some neurologists and neuroscientists say that you can still tap into, like,、um, especially if you're like meditating all the time and you're in that much more like heightened self awareness state, then you could, you could notice how your senses are like working involuntarily,、um, triggering each other. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, when I meditate, I definitely feel my synesthesia a lot more sensitively than when I'm not meditating. It's interesting that both Daedalus and Portrait XO said in very different ways that we all have some kind of synesthetic connection within us. Maybe we were all born with it, maybe it's something that kind of develops. As we grow up, and it's so interesting how it can happen in completely different ways and, and is so directly personal. It's like Daedalus said, it's this sweet spot where science and feeling combine. And we'll be back next week where we continue our encounters into what we see and what we hear. Seeing Sound is a Lost and Sound production for Playtronica, written and produced by me, Paul Hanford. Music by Olga Maximova. And thanks in this episode to Daedalus and Portrait XO.